Soccer Show Women's World Cup Daily. The US are through, but we don't need to boast after a game in which they were saved by the width of a post. It was a little disjointed, not a lot of fun, and doesn't suggest this team will make a very deep run. It's better news for the Dutch, who had total control and put away more than one amazing goal. England were tough on China, just like a good politician, with a starring role from Lauren James, the Lioness's new magician. And joining the English big dogs are the Great Danes, whose next job will be to inflict some co-host pain. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, as always, my little tired boy, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Uh, I actually got more sleep than normal because I did not try to watch this game live, and I am the happier for it. Excellent. Well, ha- is happy your general setting right now, Tater, before we uh, head into proceedings? Mm, I mean, I'm happy that I get to talk about soccer for a living. It's a nice way to wake up in the morning. I would have preferred things look a little bit different in that U.S. game. So I'm not going to say happy. I'm going to say I'm fine this morning, but better now that I get to see your darling faces. Oh, marvelous. Well, one of those darling faces belongs to Mr. Joseph Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello. 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 How are we? I'm very good indeed. Uh, a midnight start for you, Joe. Did you watch it live? I, I did not watch this one live. I got to wake <laughs> up to this one just like Taylor did. Somehow not at all surprised by the nil-nil scoreline. It felt very U.S. to have a performance that felt like it underwhelmed once again. We'll talk about a lot of the nuances and, and sort of get into the nitty-gritty later on. But um, I think I was rewarded in some ways by the soccer gods for the choice that I made. The rewind and the rewatch was, was maybe a bit better on delay than it would have been live. Joe, quick question. Did you watch, like, uh, on delay, did you watch knowing the score? Or did knowing. you watch without? Yep. Okay, I watched cool. knowing the score. That uh, gotcha. Not knowing the score would have been a mm-hmm. bit torture, I think, at that point. So that was the first thing I did when I woke up was check the score line. Saw it was nil-nil. Blinked, like, three times in a slight air of sadness and then carried on with the rewatch. <laughs> Excellent. Taylor, did you know the score before you started? Is I did that- not. And I wonder if that colors our, uh, our understanding of this game and our appreciation thereof. So, so when you wake up and, like, you've got alerts on your phone and stuff, do you just, like, no, 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 gonna watch the game before I have life well, hit me? It, it's, it's helped by, uh, I was awoken by a screaming toddler who uh, had a dream that she fell out of the car, I believe. That's is, a rude way to talk about Graham, but go on. Yeah, I mean, well, yes. Then I got a screaming call from Graham. He was also crying because the Domino's delivery driver had refused to deliver before noon, which I feel like is the stance that Domino's doesn't need to take. But no, so I was awoken by that. So I was in sort of full-on crisis mode immediately and then just went downstairs and put on the game. So I was able to avoid... Uh, most of the spoilers right up until my wife walked in in the 60th minute and said, uh, I checked the score. You can probably stop watching. That kind of gave away how this one was going to oh, finish. <laughs> that's, that's an <laughs> underwhelming uh, comment from your other half there, Taylor, I'll say. Um, joining us, bright and bushy-tailed. Just mentioned his name, Graham Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Um, you're right, Taylor. Dominoes don't deliver before midday. <laughs> but Dominic, the Dominoes man, he's now doing homers. So he was still round this morning at 8 a.m. He wasn't too impressed by the U.S. as we were tucking into our mighty meaty stuffed crust uh, for breakfast. But um, yeah, other than that, it was an enjoyable experience. Did, did you say he's now doing homers? Yeah, homers, like a like a worksman would, you know. Like when it's off the books and you just do it in a, you know, brown envelopes, cash in hand. Oh, I don't go in for any of that impropriety, Graham. I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry. <laughs> Graham, do you all have breakfast pizza over there or, or are no. we still sticking with standard pizza? Okay. Breakfast pizza is your friend, my friend. Breakfast pizza confuses me. What's on a breakfast pizza? Please it's enlighten most, me. 
I think I think usually you don't have a sauce with it. It's usually egg and cheese and then like sausage or bacon or whatever you want to go with. Uh, it, it's it's right, pretty okay. good. It's a good way to eat. It's basically eggs on toast, right. just in a pizza way. Sure. Soft toast. More yeah. nutritious yeah. than uh, yeah. More nutritious than the the second half of the Sour Patch Kids bag that I actually had for my breakfast. <laughs> I do think that's a low bar, Graham. If we're going to give credit to breakfast pizza, it is. It's not a, a high clearance yeah. level there. There was there were a, there was a fire alarm that went off in this game in the second half. Alarms were literally ringing during the US game performance uh, in this game. I presume that was either an alarm against my diet over the last five days, or it was Taylor and Joe's alarm waking them up, them up from the other side of the world. Possibly so. Uh, breakfast pizza is a new concept to me. I imagine every time you take a bite, an actual Italian shudders somewhere in the world. But uh, we will uh, move past that. Plenty of more important things to talk about. I feel like groups. that would make you happy, Ryan. I feel like that's the reason you should be eating it, is just to annoy Italians. Yeah, I don't hate it. I'm, uh, that's why it goes to Olive Garden. <laughs> <laughs> groups d &E concluded today. Let's get to the big one. Portugal nil. USA nil, as Taylor's wife informed him mid-game. Mm -hmm. Bet you're glad if you stay up for this one listener not a great night for the defending champions as i mentioned in my intro the uswt are posts width from being eliminated in the second half of this game um avoiding humiliation in the group stage let's call it that a bit disjointed this one a bit sloppy not too clinical in front of goal looking low on confidence i'm being very negative and i apologize for this. i hope we get some positives soon but for me i didn't think this was a very positive experience taylor i'm about to throw a mento into the coke bottle here and run away which team was better? Uh, I mean, I think that Portugal, given that they were the significant underdogs in this one, uh, came in and executed their game plan better. So I think they will certainly be the more pleased, exemplified by the fact that they weren't really going for a winner, though they needed the winner. I think they were content to take the moral victory of, of the nil-nil draw with the United States and uh, get out of this World Cup without being uh, roundly beaten. And I think for the United States, th there was a lot of pressure on them to get out to an early lead, to play strong from the start. Uh, the Dutch very much did that in their game against Vietnam. And I think it very quickly became apparent that the U.S. was going to finish second, regardless of how this played out, because of the goal difference issue. Uh, and, and so I think for the U.S., they come under pressure pretty quickly with that in mind. And I don't think they really rose to the occasion, whereas I think Portugal did. I think Portugal certainly the happier of the two teams with this result. I would think probably executed their game plan better overall as well. Joe, do you agree with that? Portugal being happy with this result? Obviously, they're not happy with the overall outcome of the group, and they may feel they could have done better with a, a certain shot going a little more to the left. Uh, but who do you think had the better of this one? Ah, okay. I feel like there are maybe a couple of different questions there. I don't think the U.S. should be happy with this result. Ryan just wants us to fight right off I, the bat. I know. That's clearly what's happening here. I think maybe we got all the fighting out before <laughs> the episode started. We had a, a pretty lengthy pre show chat, which doesn't usually happen, or when we do, it's usually about, I don't know, Ryan's latest Star Wars escapades or something <laughs> along those lines. So this was this was kind of new. Uh, I am generally higher. I'm just going to kind of ignore the question you asked, Ryan, and share my thoughts on the game, because I think that is what hey, you're trying, to, trying to get me to do. Um, <laughs> I think I'm generally a little more positive on this performance than everybody else, and I want to caveat that with, this was not a fun game to watch. The U.S., despite all their talent, are not a fun team to watch. They are consistently underwhelming. They were underwhelming for large portions of this game. They've been underwhelming for large portions of this tournament so far. We are yet to see them look like a team that we can all agree is like the contender, like the team defending their title and trying to go after a three-peat. That team has not shown up yet. And frankly, that team has not existed in the Vlako Andonovsky era, and I've been banging that drum for a long time. I do think, though, this can be a, a, a things-can-be-two-things type of situation where 
The U.S. underwhelmed and have been underwhelming, but they were also the better team. And I guess this is me answering your question a little bit. Uh, I, I cannot imagine a reality where Portugal are, are the better team in this game. Yeah, Ryan, I think you're, you're right to point out that there was a moment, a very real moment, where it felt like the U.S. might be going home in this game, which is a crazy thought for this team in the group stage. It's late. It's second half stoppage time. Portugal slip in, in into the attack, hit a shot off the post. That would have been it for the U.S. in all likelihood. I think they would have had six minutes or so left the stoppage time. For every one of those chances, though, for Portugal, there were maybe four for the U.S., where the U.S. were three inches to the left or one shot slightly taken better away from dominating this game. And I think the U.S. controlled large stretches of this match. Portugal, yes, they executed a lot of what they wanted to do well. They have a right to be disappointed that they're going home. I enjoyed watching this team at this competition. But the U.S. outshot Portugal. They created better chances. They created more chances. They were not fun. Again, they were not fun. And I am still underwhelmed and and generally unimpressed by this team. But the U.S. was the better team in this game. And they they still very much do have a shot to go into that game against Sweden. We think it will be Sweden uh, in the round of 16, depending on how things go tomorrow and, and compete. I I found this a more concerning performance than the Netherlands performance, Agreed. which wasn't which wasn't great. That was a flawed performance in itself. But at least the Netherlands are the Netherlands. They have quality. They have experience. They were finalists in 2019. Um, Taylor, I think it was yourself. You were keen to give the Dutch a lot of credit for the way that they actually played. Portugal aren't anywhere near that level. They might be on an upward trajectory in the women's game. But they don't have any players at the true elite level. Not yet, anyway. Maybe some youngsters who might be there soon enough. And they certainly don't have the experience of the Dutch, this being Portugal's first ever Women's World Cup. So so for Portugal to come across as, and I don't necessarily know if they were the better team or how we define that, the US still had the better XG and maybe even the chances. But to my eye, Portugal were the smarter team yep. in this match. The team that had a clear idea of what they are, of what their game plan was. They executed that better, and that is certainly not ideal for the US. Some of the numbers I was able to find on this match. So we have the XG. Joe, what was the XG again? I saw you tweeted it out. Yes, there are obviously a few different slight options. I literally just closed that tab, which is not a great look for me. I believe... Something like 2.8 or something like that? Yeah, it was like 2.6 to about 0.6. Something in that range. Portugal with the lower tally. So we have so we have that number, and we can, I can I can deconstruct that a little bit because I think a large part of that XG on the US side comes from the, the the double bite of the cherry early on from Lynn Williams to high value opportunities that comes from Alex Morgan doing the tightrope tightrope act across the the byline. I don't know how repeatable that action is, but here are some other numbers. So after twenty five minutes, Portugal had completed nearly double the passes of the US, ninety seven to fifty five. The US lost possession 58 times in just 30 minutes, the first 30 minutes of this match. Portugal completed eight more passes in the attacking third, 35 to 27, than the US in the first half as well. And Paul Carr, he tweeted out a bunch of, of charts at half time, and they really illustrated just how shapeless, how lacking in approach the US was. The touch map was all over the place. The pass chart was an absolute mess. The pass network as well. And if you looked at the Portugal pass network, you could quite clearly see a definable midfield diamond that they were working to. There was nothing like that for the US. And that is where my primary concern is with this team. Yes, there is the individual talent. Yes, Alex Morgan can dribble past a couple of players and create an opportunity out of nothing. But the US have no framework. It has no purpose as a team. And teams that do have purpose, like Portugal in this match, 
can find an, an advantage like they did in midfield. We've not highlighted the midfield yet. I, I assume that will be part of our discussion later on. But they can find an advantage in cer- certain areas of the pitch. And for the US, I don't see how that changes during a World Cup because framework takes time to establish. And the US, to my eye at this point, just yeah. don't have any at all. Yeah, so I... I- I agree with so much of that, Graham, and I think we're all in, in rowing in the same boat in, in so many different ways. One thing that, that you said there, though, that I, I'm not totally sure I'm on board with, the U.S. obviously did not dominate a lot of the, the run of play. Like, you look at the past maps that have been floating around on, on, on I'm going to call it 10 or Twitter from now on, but I'm not going to call it X just for funsies. <laughs> 10? No, on te- it's an X, Ryan. It's, it's a 10. I like it. Um, okay. You think about some of the, the visuals Joe that are floating around. Malcolm X, Malcolm, Malcolm 10. Malcolm so 10. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a position he's taking. Sure, that's a kid's cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that, Graham. Like, I, I think about some of those past maps. And, and I want to understand why we applaud Japan for not doing anything with the ball and not having a, a real shape in the attack and not dominating some of those run of play metrics. And because why we don't Spain. applaud the U.S. Wait, what'd you say, Taylor? <laughs> because they're playing Spain, a team that are going to dominate. That's all they want to do. Totally so you can fair. frustrate them and then hit them on the break. This was the United States playing Portugal, a team that are not Spain, but, a team that are not nearly as good as Spain. Let's not pretend, though, that the U.S. has ever been this team that are going to dominate the run of play, right? It's not as if this team is coming in and going to set up like Spain. One of the U.S.'s biggest advantages is that they are a bit more flexible, right? That they can go out and attack on the break, that they can lull you into thinking that you're in control and letting Portugal have the ball and then running and, bond, running and beyond and having Lindsey Horan thread a ball into Alex Morgan or having Rose Lavelle, who will miss the next game, which is a big blow for the U.S., like a big, mm-hmm. big blow. Two yellow cards in the last two games for Rose Lavelle. That's a big miss. I, I just don't really buy some of those run-of-play metrics as being a reason why the U.S. was was the worst team or, or why they were naive. I don't Again, I don't think they were good in this game. I just think there's a lot of results-driven analysis that comes here. When the U.S. win a game, everything's fine. When they tie a game or, or lose a game, things are, are in shambles. When in reality, I think the answer is probably oftentimes closer to the middle of those things. I, I hear what you're saying. I think I disagree with you, though, because I think with Japan against Spain as an example, first of all, as I said, it's Spain. Uh, but I think Japan are playing a dedicated system of we're going to sit deep, we're going to bunker, we're going to hit on the break, we're going to be ruthlessly effective in that counterattack. And you can see a unified approach within that game. They're obviously, as we talked about uh, in reviewing that one, capable of playing different styles against different opponents. If the United States had sat deep against Portugal and invited Portugal forward and then ruthlessly hit them on the break, it's not the game plan I would have expected. It's a surprising game plan, given that the U.S. seems like they should be the dominant team. But at least it's a unified approach. I don't think you could say that there was one of those in this. I felt like at times the U.S. was trying to press. At times they were sitting off. They were really stretched. They were sometimes possessing. They were sometimes just going direct, oftentimes going direct, uh, especially down the left-hand side. And it just felt to me in the end like there wasn't really much of a game plan in place. Um, It seemed like, once again, we had the U.S. relying on kind of direct attacks down the channels or 1v1 battles. And then on the defensive side, they they held their ground. Portugal hit the post, but they don't have many other opportunities aside from that. So I think the defensive showing is certainly a positive. But I, I go back to just a lot of the numbers, especially the ones that Graham already talked about. But the other ones that I saw were like the U.S. midfield, that starting midfield, I think they completed 49 passes uh, with the lowest pass completion rate from Rose Lavelle being around 57%. Portugal completed... Uh, literally double that, I believe, 98 passes between their uh, three more prominent midfielders. 
Obviously, they had four, so that also makes a difference. Uh, but all of their numbers much higher in the completion range. And so I think I come away from this, Joe, maybe I'm, I'm wanting something that isn't possible from this mm. U.S. team, but it just felt to me like another example of the, the U.S. relying on individuals yeah. and individual battles and physicality to make up for it. And in the post-match, they talked about how like we had so many crosses and so many set pieces, and we just maybe were a little bit wasteful in front of goal. I didn't feel like they were particularly wasteful. I didn't feel like they created enough high percentage good value opportunities. There's the couple that Graham mentioned. I don't really remember a ton aside from that. So to me, it just felt in the end like another sort of uninspiring game that left me more frustrated because I don't feel like there is growth. I don't feel like there's progress being made. I feel like they've gotten out of the group and that was the minimum requirement for this team. Uh, And I don't feel like they did it in the most convincing way either. No, again, like I think we're we're so close to agreeing on so many of these things. I agree with that. Like they, the U.S. did not look good or fun, and they didn't jump and leap and scream out of the group and, and dominate. Instead, they kind of crept through, and that's not really what we've come to expect from this team. I think part of the difference in how we're all thinking about these games, I think, Taylor, you and Graham have kind of been in one camp mostly for the last two matches, and I've kind of been in a slightly different one, is that I, I've given up on the U.S. <laughs> playing oh good soccer. Joe, I was not doing a like, No, but that's, that's kind of it, though, right? I, I think as you were talking there, I think that's what I realized is, like, yeah. the Olympics changed how I thought about this team. Like, yeah. I, I remember waking up early, watching those games, Taylor, you, me, and Jordan, and how awful that soccer was. And the U.S. not just played bad soccer, but they also didn't create a lot of chances, and they were uninspiring in the final third as well, and they were the worst team in too many of those games. I remember that. And I remember the three-game losing streak that we saw against England, Spain, and Germany the first time that it happened in like 30 years for the U.S. last year. I watched those games and I watched them back over again and saw how toothless this team looks at times and how, how uninspired they look and how confused they look about how to execute. And we saw so many of those things in this game yet again. Like you, We can run through the list of attacking problems, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. The U.S. tempo is all wrong. Like, they don't switch the field. They don't move the ball quickly enough from side to side. They don't set up their wingers to go 1v1 downhill. It's always Sophia Smith when she receives the ball. It's mm-hmm. always her back to goal. Like, if you go through and watch Sophia Smith in this game, she's always receiving back to goal, which means her life is so much harder. Instead, if the U.S. just switch the ball over to Lynn Williams on the right side in this game and then move it back over to the left and force Portugal's narrow defensive shape to shift... Sophia Smith can then receive downhill and drive at a fullback 1v1 and create something because that's what Sophia Smith does. The U.S. don't do those things, and it is infuriating to watch. It has been that way, though, for years and years and years. So I think my expectation is this team's not going to improve. The attack is not going to change. They're going to have these problems where the difference is between us, I think, is I've already accepted that. And maybe you and Graham are just now, it seems like, coming to terms with that. That's one thing. But the other thing is I still think the U.S.'s approach at this World Cup, kind of fits, as irritating as it is to watch, kind of fits the MO of a lot of recent World Cup winners, like a lot of recent tournament winners. They're excellent defensively. Yeah, that breakdown against the Dutch sucked, and and I'm not a fan of Andy Sullivan in that number six spot. But, like, what are the chances that they've given up that you feel really, really scared about in this tournament so far? Yeah, they might end up close to goal because soccer's a funny game like that sometimes. But the U.S. has not leaked anything. Granted, they've not played still the best of the best in the world, But defensively, they've been solid. Set pieces were an asset again for the U.S. in this game, even though they didn't create as many clear-cut chances from them as I would have liked to, if just for the Golden Chewy table in the VSP category. But, like, the defending is there. The set pieces are there. The attack is irritating. It's all get-out-to-watch. 
But I still think, you think about these games, they are creating the more chances and the better chances, even if they're not creating as many chances as they should. I do not think what I just said, it is possible to argue with that. They created more I mean, chances. They created better chances. They're not doing enough in the attack. But the reality is this team is still checking a, a large number of boxes that you would expect from a team that can compete at a tournament like this. I do disagree with sentiments of what you said. Like you say the set pieces are there. What do you mean? Because they, they scored, scored a set-piece goal set against piece? the Netherlands, Taylor. They scored a set-piece goal. That does In not three mean games. that the set-piece plan is, is yeah. there, man. And is this not meant to be the game one? against like, Portugal that Portugal are, like, dreadful at set-pieces? I don't I, remember yeah. them ever oh coming my. close to scoring in this game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Joe, I hear what you're saying. I, and I think the, 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 the biggest point that I would agree with is that it feels like you were sort of already operating yeah. with diminished expectations. And so to you, it's almost like you knew that the U.S., like, like we talked about watching live versus watching on replay. It's like, you know, the U.S. is going out in the semis. So like, yeah, they're going to get to the semis. That's- we know that. And so you're sort of like, like, OK with whatever happens because they're grinding their way through. But I don't think this team should be grinding. I don't think this team should be yep. struggling. And they are. So I think you're right that you sort of already expected that struggle. So maybe it is that Graham and I are still surprised by that. But I, I did expect them to elevate their performance from one game to the next to the next in the yep. group stage. And I don't think we've seen that. This is where I'm confused, Joe. This should be your victory lap. Like you've know, been spot right? on about this team so like so so far in advance. You were telling us this is how they were going to play, and they're playing this way. And so I'm a bit confused as it feels. It feels like you know we're, we seem to be in, uh, in in combat regularly over these performances. <laughs> I, I like the way Joe pulled back from uh, you know a very depressing. Uh, I've given up on this team. To hey, it plays like a champion within the same <laughs> point, which I thought was pretty awesome. But I suppose Joe. This this team doesn't play like a US champion that we've seen previously in the women's game. Is that fair to say? It's not, like Taylor said, it's not the same approach that would have been taken previously that has been successful in this women's game for this women's team. Well, the thing is, 2019, they, they win by doing a lot of the same things, mm-hmm. I guess. It's just they've got better players than everyone else, right? Yeah. And that's maybe the thing that's changed. Yeah, I don't know. I, I said before we started, I'm having a real hard time like wrapping my head around this game. Like, I, I, I think... It, it, this should be my victory lap. I recognize that. And I woke up to like four different tweets from people like adding me, basically saying that. I, I, I just think so much of the analysis in soccer in general, and I think this applies to this U.S. team, is so results-oriented. And, and I guess there's an element that it should be, right? Because the winner, we remember the winners over time, and it's fun to think about how that, how that happened and how it didn't. But the reality is the U.S. have kind of always been this slightly above where you think they should be kind of team based off of what you see on the field. And you think this, this analysis, this performance is so (laughs) lukewarm. And yet the reality is they still have the talent to go out and win individual games. I guess where I feel what I feel is that we still haven't learned a lot about this team. Like they're still kind of who we thought they were coming in and, or at least they're who I thought they were. And maybe that is the difference. And maybe I should have communicated that better or taken more pains to do that. I just don't think a lot's changed, and I don't, I don't really think the sky is falling either. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll check on the sky, and when we come back, more on this game. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Women's World Cup Daily. We are talking about the US's draw with Portugal. I think um, from the perspective of a dum-dum, me, I think what a lot of what we've been talking about builds into the same kind of point when Graham's talking about the shapes and the frameworks not being quite there and sort of the approach being uh, a little disjointed. For me, Taylor, my biggest question is, what was the plan? I don't understand. The thing that frustrates me about this team is I don't understand what it is doing at any given point. Uh, If you look at the second half of this game, the Netherlands are 5-0 up. They should know they can't top the group at this point. So 
why bring on Megan Rapino and do those kind of moves? Why, why are those substitutes made? Why in the 80th minute are this team still pushing forward when one goal can eliminate them? Uh, in general gameplay, I don't understand why these kind of decisions are made. I, and the whole flow, I, I just didn't get anything. Just to jump in quickly, that is maybe the one area where I would defend Vlatko, where he's getting a lot of, or he got a lot of heat on social media, was particularly the Emily Sonnet change late on in the match, which seemed to anger a lot of people, given that that is a defensive-minded change. But I just think in that situation, I'm not saying the changes he made were good, certainly not earlier in the match, but you get to that stage of the match, not a lot has worked from my point of view or my perspective. And rather than chasing the game and being picked off by a Portugal team who, by the way, like that situation and kind of proved that in the last mm. five minutes, you just make sure the damage is superficial and you're still going through well, to the to the next round of the tournament. So that change, and I, mean, I kind of defend him on. That, that's it, Graham. I thought you should be more pragmatic in an instance when your team looks like it's lacking confidence in that in that stage why not bunker down a little bit and protect and know you're going to well, go through in second rather than I think than- he tried to I think he brings on Emily Sonnet then Portugal goes to a 4-3-3 then he shifts to a back five and tries to see the game out it is shocking to me that then the two moments that I remember from that sequence are the opportunity when the U.S. backline just gets completely discombobulated and that's when and uh uh Capetta goes through and hits the post and then there's the other one uh in the 90 plus eighth minute when Emily Sonnet and Julie Ertz both go for a a header with no one around them and run into each other and the ball bounces and to me it's also sort of confounding because I think he was trying to basically just you know what we're not going to win this or even if we do win this it's not going to change things but we cannot afford to concede so we're going to like lock it down and see it out. And I feel like when they went to fully lock it down is when they looked the most vulnerable. So maybe that is changing the approach to something they're less comfortable with. I think from the jump, what I saw was the United States. It felt like a lot of the lazy talking points coming out of the Dutch straw was the the passion, the heart, the fight, the intensity wasn't there. I wouldn't really agree with that. I think that there were larger issues at play. But it did seem to me like the message heading into this one was be intense from the jump. And I think the U.S. went out, went aggressive, tried to press, tried to make Portugal Portugal uncomfortable. I think they did kind of succeed in those opening 10 minutes. It felt like that was where they were getting uh, better opportunities. They were winning the ball back higher up the pitch. They were making Portugal uncomfortable. And and then I think they eased off a little bit. And Portugal also, I think, showed that they were pretty adept at keeping the ball even under that pressure and tried to play through it or successfully played through it rather. And then I think the U.S., once that started to happen, I think some of that intensity was lost. But I also think, and this has been a thing that I'm now like fully beating the drum on, uh, going back to the Dutch game for a moment, Andy Sullivan afterwards talked about how like it's difficult for the forward line to press if they're not sure if that's when they're supposed to go. But it's difficult for the back line to step high if the forward line isn't pressing. And it... And it's a chicken of the egg situation to me, but it feels very much like no one knows entirely when they're supposed to do what. And so sometimes Megan Rapinoe's bombing forward trying to, to press and no one goes with her. Sometimes Alex Morgan yeah. tries to press, but she's by herself. And sometimes she over pursues and gets cut 1v1. And now Portugal can play in the space that's now opened up. And it just felt very quickly like the U.S. went back to that, like everybody worked really, really hard and will overwhelm them. And I think Portugal, to their credit, kept the ball, moved the ball, did not get overwhelmed by that intensity or the momentous occasion. And I think once they kind of got through that initial storm, I think the U.S. sort of relied on individuality. And to Joe's point, a lot of direct play, usually with players with their backs to goal, and they weren't really able to create much from it. 
Yeah, I also spent a lot of this match thinking of the front line and what, particularly what they were doing out of possession. Um, obviously, Vlatko has made the decision to to play with three genuine attackers. In this match, it's Lynn Williams who comes in for Trinity Rodman, but the last two matches we've seen Sophia Smith, Alex Morgan and, and, and Rodman um, obviously can create something out of nothing in possession. I thought Smith was relatively quiet in, in, in this game in particular, but out of possession... They don't really, I mean, Lynn Williams is maybe brought in because she gives you a little bit more on the, on the defensive side. But generally speaking, they don't give you a whole lot on the defensive side, whether either in terms of cohesion or even just individual pressing. There's not a great deal there. And that means if you have three of those players, you have obviously one less player in midfield. And in the last two matches, opponents have dropped an attacker in there to outnumber the US. We saw Portugal do that in, in this match. Dolores Silva was finding a lot of space. Jessica Silva as well. The 15th, the chance that comes from Portugal in the 15th minute, which might well have been their, their best opportunity until they cracked the post late on, comes from Portugal just punching a ball into an easy passing channel yeah. right through the middle of Horan and Andy Sullivan. And that, I, I do kind of wonder whether that stems from having three attackers who aren't really doing all that much out of possession at, at the front of the team. And there are ways to mitigate this. You could have, you know, Julie Ertz um, step into midfield on the ball in possession, which, you know, would allow Haran to get higher. Or you could have Crystal Dunn move centrally on the ball. Obviously, I'm talking about possession sequences here, which I didn't see a great deal of in this match either. The midfield was flawed in and out of possession in this game again for me. But Vlatko has once again just shown no willingness to look at any solutions. A solution in the Netherlands match was to bring on Rose Lavelle, which obviously worked. But that's a personnel change for me. In the second half of this match, it felt like maybe the US had kind of figured something out with when uh, Lavelle and I think it was Haran were kind of breaking through and, and dribbling and driving with the ball. There's a chance that comes, I don't have the, the minute noted, noted down here, but there's a chance that comes from Lavelle bursting into space between the Portuguese midfield and defence, which didn't happen very often. She then overplays the pass out to Smith that had peeled away uh, to the left side. But even that kind of faded away and we just didn't really see any set sequences from from the US in and out of possession in midfield. But I do kind of wonder if that's linked to how they're setting their attack their attack up. Yeah. the The other thing I want to say with that front three is, like, as I understand it, I've never played in a in a high pressing system. But as I understand it, one of the most important things is not getting beat one v one. And if you are going to be, be get beaten one v one, don't. But step two is make sure that you have someone around you to help put out that fire, so that you can then get back into position where you are covering for the person who now has to step to defend one v one. I think. Alongside that, if you're the number nine who's tasked with cutting off half the field so that you can then sort of suffocate the team on the one side, you have to cut off that pass. You cannot let them recycle possession because then the press is, if not broken, at the very least has to shuttle all the way back across and you have to run a long distance to then be back into shape to then try to press again. And routinely in the first 30 minutes... Uh, Alex Morgan did not close off that return pass. She would sort of run from the left center back to the right center back. And then if they went back to the goalkeeper, she would just sort of pursue that ball and it would go to the right center back and to the left center back. And now she's completely bypassed. But she also gets turned way too easily on a 1v1 of the 20th minute. Lynn Williams had the exact same thing happen uh, on the far sideline in like the 14th, I believe it was. And both of them then are sort of like by- bypassed 1v1 and stand there. And it takes both of them a half second to be like, oh, right, I have to cover. And then they sprint back. But in that in that little gap, five yards have opened up. And now the team has to kind of figure out what they're doing. And there isn't a really unified approach there. You don't have everybody 
right in the right positions in the right spaces to cut out the runs to cut out the individual passes and so then everybody is just sort of running and it's a lot of working hard it's a lot of intensity but it, it doesn't feel like without much purpose or without a unified purpose and so in the end you have portugal sort of keeping the ball and moving and moving it around and slowing the game down and then speeding it up as they want to and in a lot of ways in that first half, I felt like they were more in control of the tempo as a result because the United States then would win it back, go direct, go vertical, not a lot of passes through the middle, not a lot of good combination play. And it, it just felt to me like they were losing control of the game, starting with that front three, not having a sort of like a, a good approach to pressing, but also not having the defensive support behind them to allow that press to be successful. Joe, drawing back a little bit, looking bigger picture. Is it a possibility that we look at this era, maybe this tournament, as a bit of a turning point, a bit of a watershed for the US program? No longer presumed to win everything, no longer expected to get straight to a final. Europe and Asia are catching up. The you know the, the talent gap is closing. We've discussed this before. It's quite true. I was looking at this team with Rapino and Morgan in it. It seems like there's some almost some vestiges of a bygone era in this team. They've got a bit of a foot in the past and maybe need something different going forward. Yeah, I, I think I think that is real for the U.S. I think this tournament was always going to be a moment where it became very clear that there are other challengers to the throne, right? Winning winning World Cups is really hard. Winning multiple in a row is hard. Winning three in a row is, is really, really hard. And there are other teams that are, are legitimate players at this competition now. There probably have been in the past, right? 2019, the U.S. had had some issues. Like, they had to make it through England in the semifinal. Oh, shoot, was that it? Yeah, England in the semifinal. I think they, they beat France in the quarters, and then and then it was the Netherlands in the final. Like that was that was not an easy road. So there are talented teams out there. Ryan, your point about there sort of being vestiges of, of maybe a bygone era is one that I, I would agree with. It, it has boggled my mind that Megan Rapino has been the first winger sub in both games that Vlaco has made a winger sub. That that has not really made sense to me. I think she was more bad than good in this game. Although I did appreciate that she was trying to like up the tempo a little bit and, and she plays a nice through ball, which leads to a chance for the US. She did some things, but I, I I don't think there's really a way to look at this depth chart and think that Megan Rapino is that player coming off the bench. So some of those things definitely confuse me. Taylor, you look like you really want to say something. Please say well, I just have a question for you. Like, <laughs> what do you think she's supposed to bring? Because she certainly yeah. isn't bringing speed. She certainly isn't bringing the control this team needs. But in this game, I assume she's brought in to sort of be the the reliable player in distribution and on the ball, she's seven for 23 in passing. Right. I felt like she wow. underhits passes. Okay. She overhits <laughs> passes. She whiffed three different yeah, it's, uh, like opportunities on the ball. Mm. Uh, it, she felt like a completely disconnected player. And then there's that moment that I talked about when she goes sprinting up the pitch by herself. And the commentators, I think, were were frustrated that no one went with her. But to me, that's a moment where if the whole team isn't going with you, it feels like that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And part of that, I think, was informed by moments before. She had just hoofed it up the pitch, thinking that Alex Morgan had made a run, or I forget who it was at that point. But I think she hoofed it up and then realizes no one is there. And then I feel like she chased it down. And and to me, it just I didn't really see what she was adding to this team aside from Megan Rapino. And and that to me again, representative of this team. Yeah. We've got the names, we've got the prestige, we've got the swagger. We're gonna make it happen. Except we're gonna complete seven of 23 passes and not really do much on the ball. Yeah. To answer your question, she's the try stuff player. Like she, she is the, we don't have any ideas in the final third. (laughs) Like let's get Megan Rapinoe on. And and she did try stuff and and a lot of it didn't come off. Some of it did, right? I mentioned that through ball. That's her role. And and I don't agree with the decision to bring her on as the first player out wide. When you have Trinity Rodman and Alyssa Thompson, both sitting on the bench and they did 
all come into this game. Like Vlaco used all of his wingers, maybe a little later or, you know, maybe a little later than you would have wanted. But I, I think that's what Rapino's role is. It just didn't end up really mattering for the U.S. Like she didn't have a, a big impact. I, I mentioned the fact that Rose Lavelle is, is going to be out for the next game in the round of 16. The U.S.'s depth will be tested. But Ryan, to go back to your, your point in, in question, I do think there's... The, the, the players are waiting in the wings, literally, I guess, in, in terms of the wide areas. But, like, these players are here. They're, they're either at this World Cup or they're in the NWSL or, or a couple of them over playing in Europe right now. I don't really have any questions, despite a, a pretty fractured girls' youth soccer landscape in the U.S. I don't really have any questions about the talent coming through. I think the talent will always be here. I long for a day when the U.S. will have sort of this cohesive approach that makes sense, that's deliberate, that allows them to, to dominate games in the way that we've seen teams like Japan and Spain dominate games, even while showing a bit of flexibility when it comes to Japan. I long for that day, and I think the players are here to be able to execute some of those things. It's just unfortunate because it doesn't feel like Flacco Andonofsky is that coach. It hasn't felt like that for a while. And I think we see, even when it comes to his substitution patterns, that, that maybe he's not got the best grip on this roster. Indeed. Well, the US are through with five points. The first time they've ever failed to win at least two group games at a World Cup. Uh, bad news, by the way, for US viewers. The round of 16 yeah. path for the winner of this group was designed for US primetime. Now the US <laughs> are in second. It's going to be, I think it's a 5 a.m. Eastern start against Sweden instead of a 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's also bad news for the Dutch, conversely, because it doesn't suit them either. So some <laughs> bad planning there. But it's most likely, as Joe mentioned earlier, going to be Sweden, unless there's a massive goal swing in the round of 16. Could have been... Graham, a much easier path with potentially Italy or South Africa instead. Yeah, um, you would certainly say so. I mean, that that um, the timing, the time zones and the scheduling is a real kick in the teeth. Mm -hmm. I mean, FIFA really did kind of design that pathway for the, for the US. And obviously now they've finished second, they're not in that pathway. So uh, apologies for t to Taylor and Joe. That's not going to be uh, much fun. I'm yeah, sleepy boys. It's the World Cup knockout round. That, that I can stay up for or wake up for as the situation requires. <laughs> Joe, the situation will require a win versus Sweden. Uh, I am assuming they will stick with a 4-2-3-1. I'm assuming they will be very good on set pieces and put a lot of numbers in the box. I feel like that's when we can fully say the US is good on set pieces. If they score on Sweden off a set piece and then don't concede any uh but with that little bit of background is there anything in particular you would like to see either formation wise or just lineup wise from the united states in that game uh, likely against sweden new manager yeah, yeah if, if we could pull that off that would be fun um yeah the, bj callahan bj bj has been waiting in the wings this whole time i love that shout from you graham uh we need the big east foremost soccer mind up in here I would I would still move Julie Ertz to the number six spot. I, I don't love the idea of her at center back. And the fact that Alana Cook is not even the first center back brought off the bench in this game makes me think that there's actually something wrong with her. Like, like there's maybe some sort of illness or injury that we don't know about. I have no idea if that's true. That is pure speculation. But that continues to boggle my mind. Even as someone who's not a big fan of, of Cook's game, I would like to see Ertz at the six. If, if Cook can go, if not, then I, I guess you kind of keep things as they are. I would bring DeMello back in for... Lavelle, it's difficult though. DeMello, as, as big of a fan of I am as I am of hers, she has not really been very involved. She's been a little impactful in different moments, but she doesn't get on the ball a lot. She doesn't dictate the game. The U.S. in general don't do a great job of those things, but Lavelle certainly does a better job. But I, I would probably bring DeMello back in. I would still be a big fan of trying Sophia Smith out at the number nine. We have no evidence that Vlaco is going to do that though. Like we don't have any evidence that he's going to move Arts out of the center back spot either. So 
There, there are lots yeah, of challenges, man. There are lots of challenges for this game. I, I think the U.S. are still on paper the better team than Sweden. I think they very much have a chance to win this game. My resolve about the U.S. being good enough to compete in any game they play in has not wavered at all, despite some of the underwhelming performances that we've seen. And I think, honestly, it's going to be the U.S. doing a lot of the same stuff. Everybody kind of crossing their fingers and their toes and hoping that one of these shots finally finds the back of the net because it just has not happened for this team. Mm. Who was the last team to beat the U.S. in the World Cup in a 90-minute game, I ask you? Was it Sweden in 2011 by a 2-1 scoreline? Yes! Yes, it was! I don't like this bit. No, I'm not a fan of it. Not the greatest. Um, Taylor, any more on this game, or shall we shall we move to pastures news? Just, just that I think Joe is is, pre- is pretty dead on, especially with the Julie Ertz point. I, I feel like uh, in talking about that Andy Sullivan chicken to the egg scenario, what it continues to feel like for me is that there isn't a, a vocal leader in this team. I would assume that that would be Julie Ertz, but maybe with her playing center back and maybe just not feeling as comfortable. I think maybe we're not getting as much from her, and I think Naomi Gurma is is probably going to... I mean, I can understand why she would sort of assume that Julie Ertz is going to do a lot of the vocal organizing and leading, so maybe she takes a backseat to Ertz, but Ertz is taking a backseat to herself. Either way, it does not seem like there is that presence in the midfield who can scream at people when it's required and can organize and can remind people what needs to be done and can sort of make sure that everyone is functioning at full capacity and not slacking off and not getting wasteful and not drifting from where they need to be. I do think that there is a a lack of veteran presence in the midfield of this team, which is shocking given how many veterans there are. And so I keep going back to like, was that Becky Sauerbrunn? Was that Sam Mewis? Was that Julie Ertz as a number six that did those things that like unified the team or, or could sort of pick the team up when they weren't playing well. And right now I'm inclined to think that Julie Ertz at, at the number six spot would be more likely to do that and organize and let people know when they made a mistake. So I'm with Joe. I think that makes the most sense to me. Taylor, you mentioned Naomi Gurma there. Can I maybe finish on a slightly more positive note on on this analysis uh, segment? I think she's been... I think she's been very good. I think she's yeah. been the USA's best player at this tournament. She's just very chill, isn't she? Which is a welcome thing because I'm not I'm not sure if anyone else around her is chill, but um she had another good game here and maybe she's the only US player that is consistently performing at the top of her, her ability. All right. Long way to go in this tournament. We'll t- be talking about the US very shortly, but after this break, there were other games that happened on this mm. match day. Back short. Weather? <laughs> Total Soccer Show Women's World Cup Daily. Let's talk about other things that happened on this here Tuesday oh. match day. How about we talk about the Netherlands having a 7-0 win over Vietnam? Useful Whiff. for Taylor's VSP, if I Ooh. recall correctly. Or is well, it? I, th- I thought they would. I think my prediction was that they would get over 400 passes for the first time in the tournament. And I, I'm mad at myself now because I was like, maybe I should say 450 just to really, <laughs> really be bold. And I think they completed over 600. So 2,000. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. I thought this was going to be uh, Vietnam being very defensive, which they were. Uh, but I thought they would be better at it, which they were not. Uh, the Dutch fi- found their way through. Early and often, uh, the the stat in the fifth minute that came up on the screen was that both of the Dutch goals in this tournament have come before the 18th minute. They added, I believe, three more to that tally in this game alone. Uh, I thought it would be the Dutch sort of getting maybe a goal or two early and then possessing very slowly and killing this game off. Sort of not really expecting that the U.S. would go the way they did and that the Dutch would be out fully to win this group. And and I think that's exactly what they were trying to do. So they were good on the ball, possessed really well, but at the same time were ruthless in the way they wanted to attack, including 
the first goal being just a what like a 50 yard bomb from midfield to Lika Mertens yeah. who controls it well maybe slightly fortunate to be able to then get the second touch for the goal but it's a great half volley that's lifted over the goalkeeper and in and from that point on it's just the Dutch moving the ball quickly and then going aggressively forward and into the attack whenever the situation required which was about seven times in this game. <laughs> Yeah, it was complete dominance in the, in the truest sense of that word. They had 42 attempts on goal, the Dutch, in this match, including 17 on target. I agree, Taylor. It was just very easy for them to get into the final third, to get into the box. No pressure on the ball from Vietnam. And even when there was some pressure, the Dutch just kind of passed it around them as yeah. if they weren't even there. Um, some of the finishes as well oh. in this game were absolutely insane, particularly from Esme Brooks. who that third goal. It seems, Good gracious. Yeah, well, both, to be honest. It seems like she's yeah. perfected the FIFA R1 in circle finesse finish <laughs> in real life. Two incredible bending finishes from distance by Bruce Brooks, who we we might have slept on, or I might have slept on as one of the, the best young players in this tournament. She is up there with the likes of Melchior Dumournay and, and Linda Caicedo, um, and I'm pleased we'll get to see more of her in the uh, in the knockout rounds. Yeah, yeah, those two Brooks finishes, sorry, Taylor, they were absolutely superb. It was the same worldie twice, but I think we can forgive her that because they were fantastic. I In my notes, I think I wrote the sentence, good goal, but terrible defending at least six times. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, which which is fair. I think the the two points I would like to make about this, uh, for people who did not see, the Dutch, quite good. Uh, Vietnam, quite not good. The second goal for me was a very uh, useful goal for what I think the Dutch are, are very good at and what we will see them continue to do as this tournament goes forward. It's in the 10th minute uh, is when it starts, but they high, pre- they high press, they counter press after Vietnam win the ball back. Vietnam turned the ball uh, over pretty cheaply. The Dutch then try to move quickly, and then they go with some individual dribbling. I think it's, uh, is it Pelova? I, I, I always get it wrong. Is it Pelova or Pegova, the, the well, right wing? Pavlova's Pavlova. a dessert, so I think it's the other one. <laughs> okay, Pelova. thank you. Honestly, that is what's throwing me, is there's that entire Bluey episode about Pavlova, and that's all <laughs> I want to say now. Blame it on Pavlova. <laughs> uh, but either way, she then, uh, Pegova, gets, uh, gets caught on the ball, loses it, Vietnam possess, and the Dutch counterpress immediately win it back. And it's four passes where they go from the right side to the to like the right center back to the center back, and then just straight down the middle of the pitch. And it's quick combinations, and then it's in the back of the net off of Snowy's. But it's a great uh, dribble into the box from Van de Donk, who pulls in the defenders and lays it off, and then it's a, a good finish from reasonable distance into the back of the net. But that was the Dutch pressing and pressing, and then being really smart and effective in how they moved the ball. And all that to say, we've talked about the most impressive teams at this tournament, the teams that we feel like are favorites to make a run or or go pretty far. We've talked about Japan, Spain to some extent, maybe less so after that 4-0 loss. I think the Dutch, because they're sort of not as emphatic in that win over Portugal, I, I think they were kind of under the radar for me. Then they have the draw against the U.S., which we talked about plenty on this show as being good, but maybe not as good as I thought it was, if you want to like air on the Joe Lowry side of things, uh, or maybe the U.S. weren't as bad, whichever you want to go with. But after this game, I'm inclined to say the Dutch are one of the most impressive teams at this tournament with how easily they tore apart Vietnam, that they beat Portugal when the United States wasn't able to do so, and that I think they had a more cohesive game plan against the U.S. I think they're going to be a really difficult team uh, in the knockout rounds, and I think they have a lot of different looks that can cause problems for teams. So uh, well done to the Netherlands for their 7-0 win, uh, but also I think well well done for putting themselves in a great position moving into the knockout rounds. Yeah, they're fun to watch. Like this, This Dutch team is really, really fun to watch. This result really does set up the quarterfinals for Netherlands versus Spain. And I think that could be a fascinating one. The U.S. side now of the top of the bracket. If they find a way through Sweden, which is possible, or they could lose, that's also entirely possible. 
the U.S. would then likely match up against Japan and the other side would be the Netherlands against Spain. Both the Dutch and, and the Spanish like to control the ball historically, and I think that's absolutely manifested in these teams. The, the Netherlands just do a good job in this match of dismantling Vietnam, who are still in that kind of player-oriented defending where they're tracking players around in their own defensive third. And the second goal for the Netherlands is, is probably the best example of this, where they just pull players out, play in behind, see the space very, very well. They know how to create it. They know how to execute. And then the finishes were on in the evening for the Netherlands. This game, in, in terms of the pure spectacle, as long as you're, you're not from Vietnam or don't have a soft spot for, for this particular soccer team, was one of the best ones to watch so far at this tournament. Yeah, I had a lot of fun watching the Dutch. Um, my favorite moment of this match came after the match though <laughs> when Danielle van der Donk wore a t-shirt with a, <laughs> a picture of herself wearing the swimming cap from the US game she wore it through the mix zone and I enjoyed that very much yeah was it a skull stabilizing t-shirt as well did that help her structurally <laughs> do you think I think Taylor's the judge of that I was gonna yeah. say I have I mean, heard the Dutch are very advanced when it comes to skull technology yeah yeah, they, they've got it down, guys. I don't know why you're laughing. Swimming cap saving the day. What, what I do need after this result is for Panama to not lose 8-0 to France so I can get my Vietnam-specific prediction. Thank you to the Dutch for at the very least smashing Vietnam so that yeah. that goal difference is looking pretty bad for Vietnam. There you go. That's what I thought I thought was uh, the case. That it did help you in some way. Oh, yes, it did. Result, yes, it did. All right. Another seven-goal game we had with China uh, getting one goal. England getting six. No Walsh, no problem for the Lionesses. Lauren James, the star of the show here. Two very good goals and three assists here. In an England side ground with some changes with a different formation. Uh, yay. From your point of view, yay. Maybe not yay from my point of view. But I'm going to try and take an objective view of this situation. Ryan um, is evil today. He's pitting me against Joe, Joe against me, and then he's just setting Graham up to have to say nice things about England. Ruthless across uh, the board. You were saying, Graham? Okay, so I'm going to try and take an objective stance on this. This was really impressive by England. Ironically, the, ironically the, the, this felt like them arriving at the tournament for the first time in a match where, as you kind of referenced there, Ryan, with your lead-in, there were real, real fears over how the absence of Kira Walsh could impact them. Obviously, the scoreline is emphatic, but I thought the most impressive thing was that England had some real issues heading into this match, Kira Walsh being the biggest one. And Serena Wiegmann solved them. Now, that doesn't mean she'll, she'll, she'll solve them in every match, but this was a reminder of who England's greatest asset is. They've got a lot of talented players. Serena Wiegmann is their biggest difference maker. And you compare that to the Vlatko situation with the, with the US, there is a, a stark contrast there. But just running through some of the changes that she made for this game, Wiegmann, she shifted England into a back three. Uh, Jess Carter comes into the team into that back three. That means the, the wing backs, they were able to push up with Daly on the left, Lucy Bronze on the right. That overloaded the Chinese defence. England had the front three, which was really, really interesting. But when you had that front three and then the wing backs pushing forward, it's a front five that China were having to deal with. They did not deal with that well at all. Katie Zellem came in for her, her first start for England, quite remarkably, in central midfield. Um, as I say, the really interesting thing was an attack where it was Russo and Hemp as a front two, mm. and then Lauren James somewhere in behind. Um, there was a lot of movement between those three. Um, so a number of times you had Russo getting over to the left side and driving the ball forward, then crossing early for Hemp and, and James to make runs into the box. Other times, Hemp was dropping deep and, and drawing a Chinese defender with her to 
create space in behind. And then you had the star of the show, Lauren James, finding all sorts of space in, her, in and around the box. She was drifting to the left. She was hanging around the edge of the box. No matter where she was, though, on the pitch, she was a, a threat and a couple of excellent goals from her in this match. Yeah, she was a threat, Graham, because the Chinese resolutely refused to mark her at any point. It seemed. <laughs> that was part of it. Yeah. Like... That, that was part of it. But like the, the execution on the finishes was, oh, yeah. was also top-notch. The first goal... I think the first goal, Ryan, is the is the worst defended goal, maybe of mm. like the whole tournament. <laughs> so Lauren James is is standing on the edge of the box, basically waving her arms, Lashley going, "I'm free, I'm free from the corner kick." <laughs> Nobody comes over to mark her. There's no plan for her. England play the ball to the edge of the box. She, she sweeps it home from about twenty yards. I've never seen. I tweeted this, but I've never seen a, tw- a twenty yard tap in before. Yeah. <laughs> but this kind of this kind of felt like one. Uh, the second goal, though, defending maybe not great either. She doesn't get tracked as she's drifting into the box on the left side but there is the overload factor there and also it is a sensational volley back across goal with her weaker foot as well Lauren James is right footed she took that with her left foot so at the Euros last year it was Beth Mead for England who who got hot and was the real difference maker for England and it kind of feels like Lauren James is that player for for England at this tournament she's only 21 as well which is incredible what a player yeah, she's she's been absolutely incredible. Amazing what you can do when your opposition refuses to mark you in this instance. But very good indeed. <laughs> I agree with. I, I retweet. I re-ex everything you said there, Graham Russo. I thought looked very comfortable in the front too, as well. Seemed getting a bit more service, a bit more um, action up front. Uh, being in the front too, I think really benefits her as well. So uh, smiles all round here. Uh, China not great though. I think we can all agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I previewed China. They generally had a, a a disappointing tournament. They started off okay against Denmark. I thought they were maybe a little bit hard done by to lose that game, actually. Uh, but they, they just completely lost their shape in the next two matches. Um, and yeah, I wasn't terribly impressed by what I saw from them. Indeed. Uh, I have a question, question of genuine ignorance. I feel like from a US coverage perspective, we haven't heard as much about England as I feel like we have in past tournaments. I think that's obviously because there's been a ton of discussion around the U.S., but I also feel like there's been a lot of focus on CONCACAF opposition, and then like France and Brazil seem to be the teams that have gotten a ton of uh, attention. So I'm wondering, number one, do we feel at all like England are sort of under the radar, or maybe like sub-question to that would be, or is that more so just because of the way the American coverage has gone are they getting a lot more coverage, I'm guessing, say, in yes. England? Okay. Uh, every, every single game, yeah, they get coverage, basically. So I wouldn't say they're under the radar on, yeah, I was on make that point. the UK coverage. But I think th- this is a team that's growing into it, Graham, isn't it? I, I would say with this performance. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would broadly agree with that. I mean, it's difficult with major tournaments where the sample size is so small. So if you'd asked me before this match of, on my, of my opinion of England, it, it would have been very different hmm. to my, my opinion now. And all that's changed is one match against a substandard yeah. opponent. So I, I don't really know if, whether that's fair, but that's just the way major tournaments are. So yes, I would agree that it seems like England are progressing with every match that they play. You can't underestimate the momentum, that, uh, the, you know, the positive effect that that can have as well. So we shall see. Taylor, my, my advice for, any, for yourself and any listener, if you're unhappy with the US performance in any way at this point, maybe just follow the nation that invented America going forward and oh, no. everything could be... France? Oh, no. You mean France? Is that what you mean? <laughs> I'm just starting fights left, right, and center. That's why I'm. I, I know, and I'm and I'm rebutting them by pointing out that France <laughs> were the ones to military and financially support the United States in the War of Independence. In your face, England, two v one, we beat you twice. 
Haiti nil, Denmark two. <laughs> no, actually, I'm oh, just talking about that, one, that one's in France's face. Uh, let's go straight to Haiti. Yes, yes. Uh, one, I should note, actually, before we move on from England, uh, Nigeria will be the opponents in the quarterfinals. Then potentially the aforementioned France or Germany in the quarters. Uh, Nigeria, Taylor, you know, have held the Olympic champions and beaten Australia in this tournament. That's not um, that. That's that could be a tricky opponent for England. Yeah, I think it will be. I mean, I, I think there are ways that you can limit uh, Nigeria. And I think England having like a very strong defensive approach, especially with the shape. Graham, do you think they'll persist with this shape change or do you think they'll go back to a back four? Yeah, I, I don't know. I know that's a rubbish answer. Kira Walsh is the is, is the mm-hmm. wild card there because she's actually, she didn't sustain a ACL injury. So yeah. there's a chance she might actually come back in to the team, which obviously then changes the the dyna- dynamic and maybe they go to a back four but i'm afraid i'm afraid I, I, I don't really know i think basically if england play a especially i think if they keep this shape or just play as competently as they played in this game and don't give up big mistakes basically don't let nigeria into the game i think nigeria will have a hard time sort of imposing their game onto it. I think if you limit Tony Payne, especially if you don't give her a ton of time to play those through balls or to play the balls over the top, if you have defenders sort of tracking her closely and making her life difficult, I think she is so important to the way Nigeria play out of pressure, how they transition into attack, and then how they sustain attacks. I think England should be okay, but I think there are potential sort of uh, trip-up spots along the way. All right, let's get to that Denmark victory. The Denmark, of course, also through from Group D with England, a 2-0 win over Haiti. Uh, Penil Harder with a penalty. Wasn't hit very hard, ironically. And Sarno <laughs> Trollsgaard with an injury time clincher. Harder and Trollsgaard, once again, Denmark. Incredible naming uh, in this team. I love it. Um, Denmark will face Group B's winners uh, and co-host Australia in Sydney on Monday. Uh, Taylor, what did you think about the Danish performance here? I don't like Denmark. That's what I've come away with. I previewed them. I was really excited about them. I've remained excited about them. And in the opening 20 minutes of this game, it felt like, I think because I watched this one after the U.S. game, I was definitely coming at this from like, here's a team who have moved players around. They've made changes. They've they've found players who are playing in the right spots and then backed them and empowered them. And they're having good results. And then the second half and a lot of the end of the first half, like they sort of like ceded control of this game to Haiti and I think struggled with some of what Haiti were trying to do, uh, especially in like individual runs off the ball. The Danes, I think, just had moments where they weren't really focused the, the way I expected them to be. But with that said, I think moments like Pernille Harder, that penalty, she, do, she does the hop. Uh, or she do, It's not even a hop. She just does like a like hard step and completely sends the goalkeeper the wrong way and then passes it the other. That was just such a calm moment when it was needed, when they had this opportunity with the penalty. Uh, and, and then I think things like Vangsgaard uh, moving up top and being the central striker, I didn't expect that. I thought that would be Sigma Brun starting there by the end of the group stage. She gets minutes in this one, but... Uh, but it's Vangsgaard who draws the penalty and I thought was, was pretty good. And that allows Pernille Harder to, to function deeper in the midfield, which is where I think she needs to be for this Denmark team to be good. But there are still opportunities uh, for Australia uh, in this game. And I think Haiti sort of did give a little bit of a blueprint that if you overload out wide, uh, if you get more numbers into those channels and then you knock the ball into the box, Denmark will send numbers wide to to help with that defense. But oftentimes I found it was too many, but not in an aggressive way. So you'd have, if you had two Haitian players out wide, you'd have two Danish players eventually move over there to defend. But then there'd be like two more right behind. I think 
worried about maybe the individual dribble from Haiti, but Haiti oftentimes would just go for the cross and, or like low passes into the box. And then they had numbers there. And I think if you're Australia seeing the result you've just had, I think there's plenty of joy to be found by getting into good crossing situations out wide and then getting numbers into the box. I think that there will be opportunities for them uh, in that game. I think that will be a really interesting game because it could be back and forth and really tense with a couple goals. It could also be terrible (laughs) with low quality and a lot of physicality and fouls. I think it could go either way. So I was impressed for uh, chunks of this game by Denmark. And then I was also sort of confused in chunks of this game by Denmark. And so I come away from it frustrated by Denmark overall. All three matches that Haiti played at this tournament, just to look at them mm-hmm. uh, for a moment, it really felt like they were on the cusp of something special, yeah. like a really memorable result. Obviously, there was that first game against England, where England are on the ropes for much of the, that, that match, and even the the second game against China, and it sounds um, like in this match, Taylor, as well, that, that Denmark were troubled by them yeah. at times. So I am disappointed to see Haiti go home, even though that was always likely it really felt like there was something truly special as i say for them uh, in this tournament i'm pleased that we saw dumornay showcase just how good she is even though haiti don't get their win in this tournament i don't think anyone is leaving this world cup thinking she didn't show her ability even in this match she appeared to be uh, haiti's biggest threat and haiti sent bodies forward to provide her with support and in the end, I guess that's what cost them as Denmark picked them off in the break for the second goal. The challenge for Haiti now is to improve those bodies around Dumornay. And hopefully this World Cup will also break the situation in Haiti as well in terms of them playing home games at home and opening up their training centre again. And I, I know there are greater societal issues there that, that soccer cannot fix. But now that the country has seen what is possible... I hope this is a catalyst for some form of change. I would agree with that. I would also add, now that the diaspora has seen what this country can offer, which is to say that Haiti have played at a World Cup now. And if you are a dual national, let's say, living in the United States, where there is a very sizable Haitian population, uh, and maybe you're on like the cusp of the U- US U18 national team, or you've been in the pools, but you're not getting regular call-ups... Haiti going to a World Cup has to turn your head a little bit and has to make you think the U.S. might not give me looks. I might be way down in the pecking order because Megan Rapinoe is going to still be playing at World Cups 15 years from now. So why don't I go play for Haiti? I think that there will be heads turned. I think they will get more dual nationals recruited into that team because once you're at a World Cup, you've been to a World Cup. And once you've had a very good player, as they've had in De Mornay, not look overawed by the occasion, but at times in this game looked like one of the best players on the pitch. She drops deep to get on the ball and then uh, help Haiti get into the attacking phase of play. But she also has moments where she just individually presses, wins the ball, and then carries it forward and tries to single-handedly create attacks. I think you see her, you see what this Haiti team have done, even if they haven't gotten wins and progressed to the knockout round. And I think they're they're probably going to be in a position where they'll get more dual nationals, they'll get more domestic players coming through, and I think they'll be the stronger for it. Good stuff. One thing left to do in the episode, this episode, I should say, and that is to go through our very specific predictions for tomorrow's games. We've got Group G concluding with Argentina versus Sweden and South Africa versus Italy, and Group F's conclusion with Jamaica against Brazil and Panama against France. Who would like to go first? Joe Lowry. How about you, sir? It's me. It's me. I would like to go first. My prediction is for South Africa, Italy. South Africa still have something to play for in this competition. A win, in all likelihood, would or at least could send them through to the round of 16, which would be fantastic. My VSP for their game against Italy is that South Africa will create at least four shots 
from a counterattack. I, I do not think South Africa is a better team on paper than Italy. I have not been super impressed by them so far this competition, but they have shown some ability to attack in transition. They had success against Argentina via that method. They had limited success in their first group stage game in, in that method as well. I think if the, if South Africa are going to go through, and I, I think they've got a chance against Italy, I think their chances are going to come on the break because Italy will control the ball. Maybe they don't do a lot with it, which gives South Africa chances to go the other way. I'm saying at least four shots from a counterattack. Very nice. Graham, what about you? So I'm looking at the Panama-France match tomorrow. France were much better against Brazil, and I thought there was some good combination play between Gianni and, and Eugenie Lossamer. So my VSP is that those two players will combine for a goal in this match. There will surely be chances for France. They will be dominant. Uh, Taylor, what is it? What scoreline is it that knocks your, v, your Vietnam VSP out? Think, Did you say 8-0? I think 8-0, yeah. Okay, so that is guaranteed to happen. Now that's how that works. So hopefully one of those eight French goals will be a combination between Gianni and Lussemer. I'm not going to lie. I was so, because I saw you all put in the running order, like Taylor has to be happy, like with, with the prediction from this game. And I forgot that I had made that goal difference prediction when it comes to Vietnam and the Dutch. So I was sort of like, wow, you guys are really excited for the passing stats of the Dutch. Now I, now I see more. Now I see more clearly. Uh, Graham, just to be clear, we're talking about one player specifically assisting the other, not like Le Sommer giving like the 12th pass in a chain to Diani scoring. It's a good question. Yeah, the statistical definition of a combination, as that is counted. Yes, correct. Thank you, Ryan. You never know. There's some lobbyists around here, Taylor. Taylor, what's your pick? Uh, I'm going to go to Jamaica, Brazil. Uh, I think Jody Brown and Bunny Shaw will be fouled at least five times uh, between the two of them. Bunny Shaw obviously missing uh, Jamaica's last game, but we'll be back for this one where they have the the chance to get out of the group uh, very much at Brazil's expense. And I thought Jody Brown in the game in which Bunny Shaw was absent was Jamaica's best, most important player in how they were able to get into attacking spaces, uh, sometimes with runs in behind, sometimes with the ball at her feet. And I think for Brazil, they have shown a practicality to defending, uh, especially against Panama, where they had, I think they conceded seven fouls, and at least two of them were professional fouls uh, to stop counterattacks or stop buildup. Uh, Brazil had 10 fouls against France, and I think in this game, they will be okay with fouling Jody Brown and Bunny Shaw if they can stop them from getting into good attacking spaces or facilitating attacking play uh, in the wings. So I think we'll see them get knocked around a bit, Bunny Shaw up top and Jody Brown out wide. Uh, different areas of the game or different areas of the pitch, I think they'll be fouled, but between the two of them, five fouls suffered. Very good. My VSP is for Argentina versus Sweden. I'm going to say Sweden will win less than 55% of aerial duels in this game. They'd be expected to win the majority, win most of them, more than the majority. Very tall aerial team. But against Italy in their big win over them, they only had 41% of aerial duels. Against South Africa, 54%. Argentina, when they played uh, against uh, South Africa, they uh, they had 56% and they had 41% against Italy. So the I, I think that my 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 thesis here is that Argentina can compete in the air. You'd think that Sweden would absolutely dominate, but I don't think they're going to dominate in the ways you would think. So less than fifty five percent of aerial duels uh, that Sweden will win in that game. Uh, just I'd like to say, mwah, thank you very much to Mary Earps for winning my VSP with her two saves against uh, uh, against China, uh, which I said. And to Jessica Silva as well, most uh, most touches for a Portuguese attacking player. Excellent. So another one on the board. Any other well things, fellas? Just us. Great. Cool. Joe, right. did you, Joe, what was yours for today? Uh, set piece goal for the US. Didn't happen. Yeah. 
But I, no, I, the I heard they were dominant on set, set pieces, pieces Joe. <laughs> <laughs> An old man bombshell. Joe angrily shaking his head. Oh, as we Joe. Love you, Joe. Sorry, mm, Joe. I feel bad yeah. now. No, no, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. We uh, let's let's wrap this one up. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your VSPs, for your analysis, for everything you do, my good man. Oh, right back at you, Ryan. Taylor Rockwell, you rock star. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much, my friend. And Graham Ruthven, well played once again, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. You too. Listener, well played to you too for joining us on this adventure. We'll be back with World Cup Daily tomorrow. But for now, bye! Ah.